0: What is the role of culture when designing for humans? How can you create a culture of creativity? Do you always need to do research before designing? I'm bon Ku, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Phanam Bagley. She is a partner at Nonfiction, a San Francisco-based design firm that turns science fiction into reality for a better future. Banam is a French industrial designer, futurist, and aerospace architect. Her focus is on designing and developing cutting-edge hardware and wearables, healthcare, education, renewable energy, robotics, transportation, and aerospace. She specializes in turning groundbreaking technologies into impactful, intuitive, and beautiful products that help humans become the best version of themselves. With her partner, Mardis, Phenom co-host Future Future, a video series about design and the future of everything. Design Lab has a newsletter. You can find the link in the podcast show notes. Go there and subscribe. Every week you'll get some cool stuff delivered right to your inbox about design and health. There's nothing more that I like than when someone who listens gives us a review on Apple Podcasts. We read all of our reviews, they mean so much to us. So if you have time, please go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and give us five stars while you're there. And also on Spotify, you can also rate this show. Now here's my conversation with Phenom Bagley. Phenom Bagley, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited that you're joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Bon. Yeah, and thanks for uh, welcoming me into your community. I look forward to this interview.
0: Yeah, there's so many ways that we can start, but I want to start off with this quote by you. I was doing in my research preparing for this interview. You said, "Design was this perfect space between science, technology, and art." Can you unpack that for the audience?
1: Yeah, and actually, that statement has evolved in. A- Tiny bit, since I said that, I'm going to add the aspect of business. So to me, design is here for connections. It connects you know, business science, technology, and art in, in order to create meaningful innovation. Business to me is here to enable change, right? You need to put people together and all the resources necessary to execute all the way. The way I see science as a non-scientist is that it validates magic. A lot of the things that I hear just sounds out of this world and they inspire me to integrate that in the, in the designs that I do. Technology creates possibilities just by linking you know, the science, the business, the design to the user. And then finally, art is here to trigger emotions because emotions is what is the reason why we wake up in the morning is the reason why we look in awe at others and want to be part of communities
0: that really resonated with me because i found that design was this perfect space between medicine science technology and art and (laughs) it was this connective tissue that was able to intersect all those different aspects of like my career and what I saw. And we talk about the art of medicine for clinical practice. But I was like, well, I don't really see that playing out in my career. And design was this perfect space between all those different areas. So I, I love that insight. You also talk about this creativity bias in science that resonated with me? Because I feel like it's the same for medicine, that non-creative people will go into the field of medicine and the creative people go into fields like like design or the arts or music. How did you come an insight that you can still be creative and go into science?
1: So when I was a kid, I wanted to be both a scientist, specifically an astrophysicist, and I want to be an artist. I never really understood why these were so polar. You know, one was creative and the other one was so disciplined in some ways. To me, really jumping from one extreme to another really enriched each side. And that's how I see the practice of design as well. You know, we don't stay in the world of design, we jump from one place to another and feel more and more comfortable with it. So same thing with, you know, medicine and science, you know, by definition, science is about coming up with ideas or hypotheses that then you spend time proving if possible. And in order to do that, you really have to understand how the world works. And you have to also understand what hasn't been touched quite yet. And that takes a lot of creativity, right? That takes a lot of putting your assumptions on the table, and making sure that, you know, you have the tools at hand to either prove or disprove what's in front of you. And I find that to be an extremely creative process. Now, on the design side, it would be natural to think that all designers are creative, but I really think it depends on how you define creativity, Mm. right? A A lot of people who don't really understand what it means think that it's just coming up with random ideas at random times, you know, better than the average person, perhaps. But to me, creativity is, it has to do with coming up with ideas, but following through as well. Mm. Right. You know, anybody can come up with an idea. Anybody, your aunts, your child, your parents, they all have ideas about certain, certain aspects of life. But how do you take that idea and then start Building something off of it, start prototyping and start collaborating with people who might, you know, help you all the way. That's part of creativity too. The connection aspect of creativity is what makes it creative to me.
0: Oh, there's a lot of tabs open here. I'm trying to figure (laughs) out which one to dig deeper in. I want to talk about your diverse journey into your current state in a little bit, but tell us about your design firm. It's called Nonfiction, and you're based in San Francisco. What sort of work do you all do? Do you just work in the healthcare space or do you work in other spaces?
1: We actually work in every space, you can think of, healthcare being one of them, wellness, a lot of uh, transformative technology. We work in transportation, in architecture, in robotics. We work in aerospace. And the reason why we're working in so many fields is because what's at the core of our company is not design. We don't design for designers or for the sake of design. Mm. We use design as a tool to get to solutions that create positive impact in this world. And we will use every tool that is available to us in order to get there. So the tools that we use are industrial design, which is the design of mass-manufactured products. We use architecture or environmental design to create experiences that are around the body. We use engineering of different kinds with our partners, mechanical engineering, electrical, firmware, software, in order to enrich the design experience that we're creating. We use branding in order to connect emotionally Mm. with the audience we're going after. So using all of these tools and applying them to all of these industries has helped us create this, you know, portfolio body of work that is that is very rich, right? And the reason why we're able to do all of this is because of our extremely diverse, not only do they come from many different countries, right? We're 12 people coming from eight different countries, myself coming from France. And we also have many different backgrounds. You know, the average career number among our team members is like two or three, right? I'm both an industrial designer and an aerospace architect by training. And that allows us to have very honest conversations about what we're trying to solve and how we get away from the assumptions and the biases that experts might have, and then dig deep into solutions that way.
0: Hmm. Looking at your website, there's a couple of products that stood out to me that in the health and wellness space. One of them was a product that you worked on called Trio is for persons with essential tremors. Can you talk about that product and the process or methods or principles that you use to help with that product?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, So let's start with what essential tremor is. So 7 million people in the United States suffer from essential tremors. For the vast majority of the patients, they they are over the age of 65, but it also affects people who are younger, in their 30s or so. And so what it is, is that when you don't have control over uh, your limbs or sometimes your head, you're tremoring. And the tremor can be very subtle or it can be very affecting, right? It can be visible from afar. And so Cal Health, which is the company we work with, had developed a way for patients to control their level of tremors on the go. Mm. And the way to do it is by applying electricity to the wrist, and disrupt the feedback loop between the brain, the damaged part of the brain, and the wrist. The wrist is basically the part that helps you control your hands, right? And so by essentially calming the tremors with electricity, these patients are able to write a letter again. They're able to use their phone again to go to work and use their laptop again and go to a restaurant and not have soup thrown all over their their, their clothes again, right? So really improving quality of life by simply applying electricity to a wearable device. Hmm. So that's the premise of, of why this product exists. That technology is also the first FDA-approved device to do so.
0: Mm.
1: So we we help that company achieve that on time and on budget, right? So I talked earlier about the business aspect of it, that aspect of being able to satisfy the requirements put together by investors or leadership is very much part of the way we work.
0: Mm.
1: And then talking about how we designed it, designing medical products comes in a range, but this particular product is something that people live with, right? Mm. They use it at home, they use it in public places, they use it at work. Is
0: it kind of like the form factor? It's like a watch.
1: Yes, exactly. Okay. All right. We wanted it to be uh discrete, right? Not a device that screams, I have a disability, yeah. right? That's the last thing that people no, want.
0: Nobody wants that.
1: No. On top of that anxiety brought on by, you know, shame or anything like that makes the tremors worse. That's something that's been uh, shown. So so we wanted something that was very, very discreet, as small as possible in a risk form factor. The other point that was very important about the way we designed this is independence, right? You don't want someone who suffers from tremors to need someone else to open the box for them, to pull out the device for them, to put it on the wrist every morning for them or to replace the the electrodes every time. So every single aspect of that design was created so so they can do it by themselves with very strong tremors. And that was very interesting to test, right? Because we make a lot of assumptions, well, this person can can charge the device just by dropping into this base that we created. And uh, there's actually a very interesting story about charging. So we had an original design that was slightly different from what Mm -hmm. you see on the website. And so we tested it, I believe on 32 individuals and 31 out of 32 had no problem. They knew what to do. They dropped the thing in, it charged, you know, the targeting was easy thanks to, to magnets. Mm-hmm. And then that 32nd person comes in the, the testing room, really, really strong tremors. And he sees the charge on the table and, and starts panicking. He's like, there's no way I can put the device in that. And we're like, well, how about you try it? and then he tries, and then he tries, and he fails. He, he can't mm-hmm. do it. And so in any other situation, you know, when 31 out of 32 people are able to use a product, we go with that.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good.
1: Yeah, but when we design a medical device that, that is supposed to help everyone, especially the ones who suffer the most, we had actually decided with the client to come back to a drawing board and change the design of that base. And so we did. And after two or three weeks, we came back and tested on people again. And that same individual who really had a hard time the first time came back. And then then he asked us, did you change design just for me? And I would say, yes. And that's when I started crying.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: So these moments are why we do what we do and how we do it.
0: I, I love that story so much. There's another product that your company design on sleep. It's called Somni. Yes. Can you tell us that product? Because I actually was like, I want to buy this, but it's like not out on market yet, or it's like there's a Kickstarter right right now.
1: Correct. Yeah, we we have an Indiegogo campaign going on, and the product is still in development. is going to come out around October of this year, so fairly soon. Oh, cool. So we've been working with a company called Tim Science, and part of the founders and advisors are UC Berkeley neuroscientists and uh, psychologists.
0: Yeah, really smart nerds. Well.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And Matt Walker is actually involved as an advisor. He's the author of the book, Why We Sleep, which uh, is cool. uh, yeah, pretty yeah. prominent. And so the neuroscientists have found a way to tell the brain how to fall asleep. And then from there, the brain knows what to do next. Mm, So the way we do that is that we have people wear a band over their forehead just before bed, just for 15 minutes. And then it applies uh, a little bit of electricity to your brain. And so brain, the brain has brain waves that act in many different ways. And the first phase of sleep is a phase of drowsiness is when your, your eyes starting to get really heavy and you naturally fall asleep. And for a lot of people, that's actually a problem, right? Mm. They're in bed. They're like, you know, checking their Facebook or whatever. And it lasts forever and they can't fall asleep. And so that device actually helps them do that. Mm. And what's nice is that you don't have to wear the band the whole night you can take it off if you want to, but if you choose to wear it the whole night, it can read your specific brain waves and stimulate you the next day specifically for you. But what's been wonderful about this product is, is its effectiveness? So a film producer at the office here was actually part of the video testing group, mm-hmm. um, testing this product. And she had been a lifelong insomniac. Could not sleep more than four or five hours a night, was interrupted all the time, you know, would like read a book in the middle of the night, you know, like like really bad insomnia. Yeah. On the second night that she tried that device, she was able to experience eight hours of sleep. Not only eight hours of sleep, but also an hour and a half of REM sleep and an hour and a half of deep sleep, which neurologically is exceptional. And she's been able to keep up with that quality of sleep mm-hmm. every night that she's used the device. So that's pretty revolutionary. So imagine a world where everybody has a good night's sleep, right? Everybody's emotions and focus and relationships and everything would get better. So we're really excited about the impact of all of that. If I have to talk about the design of the device, you know, when you say, you know, UC Berkeley, neuroscientist, device, very serious, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. It should look like a nerdy device, right? Like something out of a lab or something out of you know. Star
0: Trek, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: But nobody wants to go to bed with that, right? A lot of people go to bed with someone else. You don't want to scare them off. Yeah. So, so we really thought uh, deeply about how to design this device. So, number one, making it comfortable. You know, we covered the entire device in silk, actual mm. silk, which slides on your pillow and really slides on your face beautifully. Instead of using foams that might heat up if you choose to sleep at night with it, we wanted to uh, use cotton padding and that creates an airflow through the product. And then you know, try to make it as you know luxurious and almost intimate as possible. Mm. And so this device looks nothing like any other brain simulators that you see out there, but it, it is effective, but it also integrates very beautifully in your sleep environment.
0: Yeah, it doesn't look like a tech device. I'm curious to know when you showed some of the initial designs. The scientists they think, what is this? This doesn't look techy enough. Like, what, re- what was the reaction to that? Or do they like love it?
1: So this particular client was actually looking for uh, something that did not look techy. Okay. Now they didn't know what manifestation it might have. But we really went down the path of symbolism, really thinking about the four phases of sleep
0: Mm.
1: and create that device to have four divisions that way. And and really thinking about the, the peacefulness of deserts and mountains. And that's why you see a lot of waves in the front. And the waves are also reminiscent of brain waves. But we designed them to be very calm and peaceful. So... The experience of a product starts before you use the product, right? Mm-hmm. The first time you see it, the first impressions, the first time you touch it, the first time it touches your forehead, you slide it on and you see it. It's And, and also when you're not using it, when it's, when it's right next to your bed on your nightstand, right? It has to have a feeling of, oh, I can't wait to use it again. So, so all of that behavior needs to be built into the way we design our device. It goes beyond just the physical.
0: I, I love all of that. Um, I have so many close friends and family members who have trouble sleeping. So, and, and I'm a skeptic when it comes to all these sort of devices, but I can't wait to try this when it comes to product. Like I'm gonna buy a couple and go yeah. test them out on, on people. So I can't wait till that, that product drops this fall. I want to switch gears and talk about another one of uh, your quotes that I loved. You said, I have created an infrastructure about solving the complex problems of the future about play or like through play. Did I get that right? Yeah. Uh
1: So design can be very romantic, right? You have a design career and you're like, oh, I'm going to design all these really cool things with very cool people and it's going to have a lot of impact. It's going to be great. And the reality can be a little bit of a grind because there's a lot of negotiations going on. There's a lot of disappointments of good ideas, not going forward or, you know, tensions between teams that might not get along with each other. And so I've done a lot of that. (laughs) And so have a lot of designers with careers that's a little bit longer than five years. And, and I realized that design should be one of the funnest jobs out there Mm. and since we're designers, we know how to create systems and work in essence is a system, right? So how do I create work, a work environment and a team building and in a culture that is all based on collaboration and play, right? Because what's great about being collaborative and playing is that you liberate your brain from you know the day-to-day stress and you can be more creative right? And when you're more creative, you tend to be more productive and more encouraging and inspiring other people to do so. And so there are many things that we're doing here at the office that help. One, the people who work here are really fun. That's number one, right? Don't hire someone who's just like a potty pooper that doesn't get you anywhere. Two, is creating an environment that is very flexible, right? Behind me right now, I have a, a material library, Full of different materials, natural materials and polymers and carbon nanotubes and things like that. You can touch them, you can see them, you can smell them, you can bend them, you can do a bunch mm. of things with them. And that is a wonderful way to start getting inspiration when you know, you're know you just sitting around here. Mm. And same thing with everything in life, right? I think every aspect of life is the opportunity to get inspired, going to the movies or reading books or you know, going to a drag show, whatever. It's, everything is, is wonderful in their own way and you mm. need to be open-minded about it. And in terms of methodologies, there are some tools that we use here that, I, that we've crafted over the years and have been very effective. One of them is to shun research. Mm. So a lot of the times designers are, are taught to research a problem before they start designing. And it might be useful in certain areas right? Where, you know, you kind of have to figure out where you start. But sometimes when you don't research, you use other tools, you Mm. use what's in front of you, and you use what's within you. And there's a tool that we use called LEI in our office, which means logic, experience, and intuition. Mm. Logic is accepting that everybody has a different sense of logic, Right? We were raised differently, different countries, different cultures, different families. What is good for me might be bad for you, et cetera, et cetera. So let's just accept that mm-hmm. and, and go from there. Also, you know, welcoming the idea of neurodiversity, mm-hmm. that I might react or learn things differently from you. So that's about logic. Experience comes in pretty, pretty strongly because every one of us has experienced life differently, went to school. Differently in different places. We have different relationships with our parents and our siblings, with our friendships, with our love life. And all of that experience can be brought into projects mm. in very wonderful ways. And then, lastly, is intuition. Intuition is like the cheapest and fastest way to get to a wonderful and meaningful solution. And I really value that because. You know, really sensing when something is right or something is wrong, and moving on quickly to a solution or to the next idea is a wonderful tool to use every day.
0: Some of the stuff you said is so inspiring, and I'm just thinking about my environment being in healthcare. And healthcare, we are so serious in many ways. We got to be serious. I mean, we deal literally with life and death. But I think there are ways to infiltrate healthcare with some play. And you know, I, I run a lab with my producer, Rob, and with other colleagues, and it's a very playful environment. And, you know, And a lot of people from the hospital, when they come in, it like blows their mind away because it looks so unlike any other space in the hospital. And a lot of our inspiration for how we created a space was visiting design studios like yours. What advice do you have for listeners who are in quote unquote, more like serious industries of like how to introduce a playfulness into their spaces?
1: I think number one is color, right? We humans react positively to color, to Mm. change, to personalization, to quality of lighting and things like that, right? If you are in a drab environment, you're going to have people with drab personality most Mm. likely. Mm. But if you have This richness of texture, of color, of human elements, that is going to help a lot. Another thing I've observed, or scientists and doctors have observed, is pretty important in healing people is uh, PMA, positive mental attitude. So, So it's been shown that positive mental attitudes actually help people heal faster right? Or the fact that they believe that they can heal helps them get there. You know, I, I was exposed to the idea of, of that when people suffer from a spinal cord injury, mm. there's a period after an accident where if their attitude is positive, they're much more likely to recover and be able to walk again. And so knowing that from a scientific standpoint can actually influence how we create the environment that welcomes people into care, right? Mm. Let's not think about hospital as sick care buildings, but more as welcoming healthcare environments. Mm. And like every experience, we have to think about what happens before, what happens during, and what happens after, mm. right? Do I walk into a hospital terrified of, you know, hurting or dying or people screaming at me or whatever, or do I feel welcome and just trust what's happening so I can, I can help out along the way? You know, language as well. You know, sometimes people walk into a hospital where, where they don't understand the language mm. and they're terrified or they don't know if they're being taken advantage of or not. So really having that, that whole system where, you know, translations and compassion are very evidence from the beginning helps open people's opportunities for care so mm. they get the best care that they can. Hmm.
0: Another quote that you said, which I love, you said, imagination is my fuel. And again, thinking about my space, the healthcare space, I feel like we lack imagination because it is such a complex industry. I hate the word industry, but let's just use it for lack of a better word. Healthcare industry is it's so regulated. It's so complex. And I feel like there is such a lack of imagination. And because of that, that kills our ability to Redesign the future of healthcare. And I'm curious to know kind of your thoughts on the future of healthcare, how we can apply why our imagination is important to change the future of healthcare.
1: So I would have agreed with you maybe 10, 15 years ago. But I think in the last decade, we've seen a plethora of startups in the healthcare world that are doing really exciting things. Yeah. Right. And the exciting thing they're doing is that they're getting closer to the patient, right? We're able yeah. to get sensors or give them help at home, extremely personalized using you know, machine learning and all of that, and really caring for them every step of the way. And I think that's a really exciting revolution that's been happening.
0: Yeah. I would say, and just to go on that point I'm like, absolutely with the startups, but, but those are the startups. But when I look at people who are actually like in the industry, right? working in hospitals, administrators, people on the payer side with insurers and physicians that like a lot of them feel like they have to leave the healthcare industry and go into some of these startups because that's where the imagination is happening. I've seen that a lot. Like some mm-hmm. of my medical students will leave, not actually not go into clinical practice but join a startup. I'm like, "Well, That's cool. But we're losing some of the best and brightest minds here. Why don't you stay in the industry? And I feel like maybe it's because they feel like they can't tap into their imagination and creativity within the healthcare machine.
1: Yeah. I mean, there there needs to be some sort of revolution going on there. And I can apply that to other industries as well, like education, for example, which is another monster. There's a lot of infrastructure that's put in place that goes against Imagination, right? Yeah. Um, for good reasons, sometimes, you know, regulatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I like the fact that products are reg, you know go through regulatory, so I can trust them a little bit more. But there's a fun way of doing that, and there's the dreadful way of doing that. Mm-hmm. And I think if more and more corporations or hospitals or administrative groups are more open to it and see their job as more. Uh, really thinking about the future of their job instead of thinking of their job as a day to day. I think that's going to be a huge change, mm. and that's all changes with attitude, with the use of language, with who you work with, who you're willing to collaborate with instead of working against, mm. and then really integrating all of these these fun parts that's fun ideas that make that make work you know fun every day. Another thing is also thinking of how you welcome new people into your field, right? Mm. Are you hiring the same people who act like you Mm. and want the same thing as you, right? Or do you want people, you know, young and, you know, innocent and not, not very experienced, but have the potential of being great if you give them the right environment to blossom in? So any industry can do that, right? I work a lot with the space industry. There's a lot of that going on, right? For a long time, we've been focused on STEM, you know, what kind of rockets can we send up there? What kind of, you know, superhuman astronauts can we put to the task? And then how do we bring them back alive? Mm-hmm. But the future of space is going to be a lot more exciting. It's going to include all of us. That's number one. Mm-hmm. And all of us are not professional astronauts. We have very, very little resilience compared to them. And what that means is that there are all the infrastructure of how we think about space needs to change because of that. So your eyes are going to continue doing things the way you've been doing them, or you can completely revolutionize everything by hiring people like us. So same thing for the, you know, healthcare industry, you know, do you choose to think about what the future of healthcare is, which is decentralization of care, mm-hmm. which is extreme personalization of care, mm-hmm. which is, you know, all of these wonderful innovations that are are get closer and closer to reality right developing great crazy ideas used to take decades if they ever came out yeah. and now thanks to the the short cycle of development in startups and and mid-level companies it's becoming more accessible you know yeah. people are excited about robotic surgery people get excited about you know being able to get care without ever going to a hospital
0: yeah Oh man, we're running out of time. I've got uh, so many questions, but I, I definitely wanted to hit on something that we we're talking about before we started recording about how both you and I aren't identified with a specific region of this world, right? Because we're we look a little bit different from the places where we we're, were at. Maybe our accents are a little bit different, and you have you're you're very diverse in terms of like where you live, your ethnicity and i feel like that's reflected in your career too right you've you've dabbled in so many different careers so i was curious to know did those two aspects of your life have influenced each other and kind of like how did you get to where you were at right now in the short amount of time that that, that we have left of what were some of your influences
1: yeah. So to give everybody a little bit of background, I'm a French-Vietnamese individual who was born and raised in France, partially educated there. And then I moved to the U.S. How old was I? 23. And I've been living here for 17 years. And uh, within the U.S., I've lived in New York, in Texas, and in California. I've been in San Francisco for about 10 years now. And, and then throughout this whole time, I also traveled extensively in the world, I've been to all over the place in Asia. I've been to, you know, New Zealand, you know, almost died there. Uh, <laughs> and,
0: <laughs> That'll be part two of our podcast. Yeah, we have um, us on. <laughs> I
1: went to the southernmost city in the world. I went to Iran by myself, you know, a bunch of things like that. And all of these experiences truly enrich who I am and also make me reset my life. Mm. Right. Every time you travel somewhere, all your habits change, all your behaviors change. You really have to have to be respectful of where you go and how the way locals live and, and really understand the subtlety. And that, that actually has taught me how to read people very well. Mm. Oh, this person does that out of habits or out of tradition. You know, this is what beauty is in this culture. How is it so different from the way I perceive beauty? So every time I I travel, every time I move to a new place, I reset my biases and enrich the way I think about things. And then naturally I inject all of that in the work that I do, Mm -hmm. right? Designing things for humans has to include culture. Mm -hmm. If you don't include culture, it's just a thing that people Mm -hmm. are not going to care about. And, you know, they're just going to forget about it after using it for two weeks But when it's culturally rich, when it has color and texture, when it uses behaviors that are ancestral or new or exciting, there's a level of intelligence that surrounds an experience that brings people to want it again. Mm. And that's really at the core of how I like to design things in this world.
0: I love that. And I think that's a Great way to end the interview. Um, And for a listening audience, check out Nonfiction's work. We'll put a link to their website and their amazing YouTube series. Can you describe this YouTube uh, series that you have? It's just, it's so much fun to watch. Like, why do you do it? And what what are you trying to, what's the mission of that uh, series?
1: Uh, Yeah, the mission is actually quite sad. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I was a, a college professor for about four years, and you know, involved a lot with uh, teaching the next generation of designers. And I realized that there was this chasm between design education and the world of design as a career. Right, mm-hmm. a lot of the things that were taught were completely obsolete. Very unrelated to the world of entrepreneurism or technology or business or anything. It was a lot of like, oh, let's make shapes for the sake of making shapes. And I had no interest in that. So Mm -hmm. when I taught, that's the kind of flavor that I put into my teaching. And so after I stopped teaching, I, I still continue to see that gap. And so I decided with my partner and the rest of my team, well, why don't we make the way we think about design education and design in general accessible to everyone? So, you know, we started writing episodes and of course it sounded very nerdy at first. And then our film producer, who has nothing to do with design, you know, taught us to really bring the language down to something that's accessible to everyone. So everybody from your family, kids, you know, super nerdy scientists, whoever can have access to how designers think about design and how we think about the future of everything. So this video series is called Future and it's available on YouTube. You can also find a link on, on our website. It's been really fun to uh, to to produce and we're actually currently producing season two.
0: Yay! Fanam, thank you for joining us on the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having us. It's been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Fanam. You can find her tweeting at P-H-N-A-M. B A G L E Y. And reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, I can be found at B O N K U. On Instagram, at D R B O N K U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston, and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.